We ready? All right. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming out tonight. It's getting cooler out there, isn't it? It's cold. Oh, yeah. That's true. But not like it's going to be, you know. <laughs> you want, one of these days, you one of these days you'll you'll think forty degrees is like summer, boy. <laughs> you'll love for a forty degree day. Well, let's uh, have a word of prayer, then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your grace to us this day and your kindness in Christ for the salvation we enjoy and for your care and concern for us and how you. And your sovereign will have planned all these things out. Give us, give us grace and wisdom to follow what you say in your word. Help us to trust you and depend upon you in all things. Bless our class tonight and each one. I pray that we'll have understanding of your word and we'll be able to grow thereby. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at the first big problem that we're dealing with in, in Corinthians. I used to complain. I always tell Pastor Ken I'm the gift of criticism. My spiritual gift is criticism. <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of books that say, you know, that say the theme of the book is this. The theme of the Romans or something, the theme. And you can say that about some books. You know, you can, you can kind of get a theme, but you try to say, what's the theme of 1 Corinthians? Well, there's no, it's hard to say. I said life in the church, you know, because it talks about problems. And Paul is just dealing with a series of issues that have come up in the church. And the first one, as we've said, is a problem with misunderstanding of the gospel that has led to uh, divisions or differences of opinion uh, in the church and that has led to kind of divisions about following certain leaders, preferring one person over another. When we're talking about the various people who have come to Corinth, we know that Apollos came there and of course Paul founded the church uh, we don't know about Cephas, but we know that uh, in their society, just like in our society today, we, our culture, our society, we admire people who are successful, who are good-looking, <laughs> who are rich, you know, who are, we, we admire the accomplishments and all that kind of stuff. Naturally, we do that, and that's a problem, Paul says, because you Corinthians are, are having that viewpoint, and that's distorting the gospel. And so he says, you've misunderstood the, the message of the gospel. It's not like the philosophies that are common in Corinth, in Greece, in the Roman world, that prizes those sort of things, just like in our world, prizes those kinds of things and people. Uh, and so he makes this dramatic statement that's rather amazing, at least when you think about it. He says, I'm going to start off by saying that there's a sense in which the gospel, the message that saved you, is foolishness in contrast to the messages of the world. 
it's, it, it, and he's foolishness, he says, to unsaved people, especially unsaved Gentiles. And uh, so uh, you, you, you shouldn't expect people to have this very positive view of the gospel. And that's a problem for us too, isn't it? Because we try to talk to people and so forth, and to us the gospel is a wonderful thing, it's great, and we, and we don't quite understand sometimes why people have such a negative reaction to it. And Paul says the reason is, one reason is that this message, especially at Corinth, looked rather foolish and silly that you would put your hope in some Jew who was crucified by the Romans. The, the message of the cross, that, that trusting in Christ, that, that appeared to be a rather foolish message. And so he spends a lot of time, 118 through 25, trying to explain that uh, to the unsaved mind, the gospel is, is not going to be appealing. They're, people are not naturally drawn to it. It's going to appear foolish. And then he reverses courses, course when we're in the section we're in, 2, 6 through 16. And he turns around and says, but there is a sense in which the gospel is wise. It, it's very wise. It's wisdom. There's wisdom in the gospel. And we see it, but we only see it because we've been regenerated, because we have the Holy Spirit and we can understand the things of God in a way that unsaved people can't understand them. And so he's been talking about that, and he gets to the real heart of it here um, in verse 14. That's what we're left off looking at last time. When he says, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. That word accept is the Greek word that has this idea of accept in the sense they don't welcome them. They don't, they don't, they don't, they don't, uh, they don't have a positive view of the things that come from God. Now that would be the gospel, the word of God, you know, whatever revelation comes from God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them. We'll have to explain that because they're discerned only through the spirit. I say here with verses 14 through 16, Paul now uh, picks up on the negative side of the truth of verse 13. Those who belong to this age are now called without the Spirit in contrast to those with the Spirit in verse 15. Now the person without the Spirit here, I, my notes are a little cryptic there, not right, but what I was trying to get to, you remember, if you remember the King James, uh, all of you are old enough to remember the King James, I think. <laughs> the natural man, it starts off, not the person without the spirit, but the natural man uh, receiveth not the things, you know. So that natural man is that Greek word sukikos, which is the Greek word that sometimes translated suke is the word for soul or just a human being, just a person. So in this case, it's talking about the, the man who, is, who doesn't have the spirit. And so the NIV has done that to help us here. The natural man, the natural person, is the person who is just a human being who has not been regenerated, 
and therefore is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So we're talking about the unsaved person here. Uh, it's the same word in Jude 19. It says, it is these who cause division. They the NIV, ESV translates it, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Um, so that just explains why the NIV has said person without the Spirit because Jude says these sukikas, that worldly people is sukikas, I'm going to explain who they are. They're devoid of the Spirit. They're without the Spirit. So uh, here in 2.13, the NIV has decided to put in the person without the Spirit. And I say here, uh, those without the Spirit are described in three ways, each in terms of the relationship or the lack thereof to the Spirit. First, they do not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. Second, the reason for this not accepting is that the things of the Spirit uh, the things of the Spirit should be our foolishness to them. Left out the R, I think there. Uh, is that the things of the Spirit are foolishness to them. Because they have not received the Spirit, they've not been regenerated, uh, their view of everything is from the bottom up, twisted and distorted. Third, they cannot understand the very things that the one who has received the Spirit can. Here the emphasis lies on their inability. Again, it's like is known by like, as we had in verse 11. Without the Spirit, they lack the one essential quality necessary for them to know God and His ways, the idea that things are discerned only through the Spirit. So the word discerned here, uh, they cannot, they are discerned, means to make appropriate judgments about what God is doing in the world. And the person without the Spirit obviously cannot do that. I say here, sometimes Paul's statement that the person without the Spirit cannot understand the things that come from the Spirit of God is interpreted to mean that an unsaved person cannot understand the gospel message or the Bible in general. And that's what I thought when I first got saved. And I think that's what I was taught and kind of, I mean, that's the perception I got. Well, the person who doesn't... Uh, who's not saved, they can't really understand the Bible, they can't get it, you know, and so forth. That's not exactly what Paul is saying. You have to, we have to understand, what does the word understand mean? <laughs> they cannot understand them. Uh, I say the Bible is written in human language. In that sense, it's no different than any other book. And human beings, including those who are unsaved, can understand human language. So that's why we give people gospel tracts. Uh, with scripture in it <laughs> because they can read it and they can understand what the English sentence is saying, you know. Um, but there is something about the Bible, Paul says, the unsaved person cannot understand. What is that? It can be helpful to distinguish between the bare grammatical meaning of a text in scripture and the significance, application, or implication of that text. Paul is not denying that the unbeliever can understand the basic grammatical meaning of a text, only that he will not be able to grasp how the meaning applies, the implications or significance of that meaning. The word understand suggests not primary perceiving or intellectually comprehending in this context, but embracing things as they really are, grasping the truthfulness of them and recognizing them as fact. The problem is primarily not one of cognition, but of evaluation. To understand means to evaluate positively. 
that the unsaved person does not in fact understand the meaning of biblical truth is made clear uh, by the words, considers them foolishness. Compare this with 319, for the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. Obviously, God does not consider the wisdom of this world to be foolishness because he lacks the ability to comprehend, to conceptualize, to comprehend. No, God fully comprehends the wisdom of this world and is judged and evaluated as being foolish. Likewise, the person without the spirit can grasp the basic meaning of biblical truth, but cannot correlate it. Instead, they twist it and distort it so that it all appears foolishness to him. To them, to him. Um, to them, I guess I should have said. Wow. Uh, the implications of God's truth find no receptive place in their heart, depraved heart. There's no positive response by the unsaved person. So, you know, to illustrate this, um, the Bible says Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. You know, any unsaved person can understand that. That's just English. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. It's not, you know, you may not know what it all means. You might not know what Judea is or what Bethlehem is, but those are English words, you know. We, we, we assume a person can understand John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. You know, that's English. A person can, can understand intellectually what that means. But what this word understand has the idea is not accepting them. Uh, they don't understand the significance of it. So, time, so sometimes you'll hear us talk around here about the difference between meaning and significance. And we use those terms because we're trying to say that people, unsaved people, can understand the bare grammatical meaning. It's written in English. That's why we pass out Bibles to people and tracts to people. It's written in English. We can, but, you know, they, they're not going to, without the Spirit working in their hearts, they're not going to have a positive view of it. <laughs> they're not going to understand it like we understand it. They're not going to appreciate it. They're going to reject it. That's what Paul is getting out here. The, the person without the Spirit, they don't understand the significance. They don't, you know, they can read John 3.16, but so what, you know? We think it's the most wonderful truth in the world, <laughs> but not an unsaved person. They just, okay, that's what you believe or, you know, something like that. But we, you know, we often tell people, I've told many people, unsaved people, well, read the Gospel of John because we expect that they can read it and kind of understand what the text is saying and we hope and pray the Spirit will use that word so they'll really understand. You know, they'll really see the significance of that. The Spirit will work. They'll, they'll come under conviction and that kind of thing. So Paul's contrast here is that the Gospel is foolishness to the unsaved person because they don't have the Holy Spirit to see the significance of that. But we're, we, if the Spirit works on their hearts and lives, they can come to see it and they will realize it. So we're dependent. We're dependent upon God to work in people's lives. Um, you know, when I was first saved, I don't know if you were like this, but the, I was just talking to a brother today and 
the tendency is when I got saved, or I don't know if it was when you got saved, to think, you know, if I could just get my arguments down, if I could just, you know, come up with persuasive arguments and, you know, if I could just intellectually persuade, because they, they, we think the, the problem with the person is an intellectual problem. They don't, they can't, they don't fathom intellectually what we're saying. No, they understand intellectually what we're saying. They, it's just nonsense. <laughs> so it's not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem they have, a moral problem. Yes, I didn't lay my hands on them. Yeah, that's it. So uh, that, there's that tendency. I had that tendency. You know, if I could just persuade people and you talk to your blue in the face. So, you know, uh, that's, that's what, you know, somehow we have to have the right balance, don't we, in witnessing to people, is, especially family members. You try to talk to them about the gospel, unsaved. You talk to them, but you only talk so much. You know, you have to look for opportunities to explain and talk at the right moment because you may have explained the gospel many times. You know, it's really a problem of moral problem. They, they, their heart is not changed. And the thing we, have, we want to do is keep reminding them of this truth, you know. But, you know, there's no way to beat them over the head and make them necessarily see it. That's the, that's the problem. That's the work of the Spirit. And Paul says the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. So verse 15a stands in contrast to the final word about persons without the Spirit in verse 14. The person with the Spirit can make judgments about all things. Now such a statement, of course, must not be wrested from its context. It is the Spirit who searches all things, even the depths of God, verse 10. Therefore, the person who has the Spirit can discern God's ways. Not necessarily all things, of course, but all things that pertain to the work of salvation, matters of formerly hidden in God, but now revealed through His Spirit. Uh, I mean, when it says the person with the Spirit makes judgment about all things, don't let that all things get... I can tell you about nuclear physics here. I'll, I'll, I'll explain particle physics to you in a moment here. No, it doesn't mean because I am dwelt by the Spirit that I can do that. We're talking about all things having to do with the gospel, with salvation. It all makes sense to us. Yeah, it, it, makes, it makes good sense to, to me. It, makes, it fits. It all, it all makes sense. Uh, the person lacking the Spirit cannot discern what God is doing. The one with the Spirit is able to do so because of the Spirit. Therefore, the one with the Spirit cannot examine or make judgments on the person with the Spirit. That is, they don't understand us. The person who belongs to this age is not in a position to judge as foolish the person who belongs to the ages to come. Now, they do it, but they really can't really judge us. They can't really understand. Someone once said, the profane person cannot understand holiness but the holy person, holy person can uh, well understand the depths of evil. So the profane person cannot understand holiness, but the holy person can well understand. That's what Paul is saying in this verse, that the unsaved person <clears throat> doesn't really understand us or holiness or salvation. <clears throat> they don't, but we understand them fully because <laughs> we were there. <laughs> we were like that. We were just like them. 
And so we know, we know exactly what they're thinking. We know what, what, what their objections are. We, we get it. Um, so we can discern all things. That's what Paul is talking about. We can figure this out. Uh, we understand the secret of life. We understand why we're here, what we're doing here. We understand what the purpose of the world is and where the world's going, you know. We've got the answers because <laughs> God's got them in his book, you know. But the inverse is not possible. The person without the Spirit, even the smartest guy at U of M, you know, even the most brilliant, you know, guy with 180 IQ, he just, he can't figure it out without, unless he's saved, you know. He just, he can grasp around, come up with this answer, that answer, but he's not going to get it. Verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Obviously no one. But we have the mind of Christ. Verse 16a gives scriptural support for the assertion of 15b that such a person is not subject to merely human judgments because nobody can know the mind of the Lord unless that mind is revealed. It serves as a rhetorical question to demand the answer. No one can know the mind. Paul is thus asking those without the Spirit, how can they expect to know true wisdom and thereby pass judgment on the one who has the Spirit? when they don't have the mind of the Lord. In fact, Paul's asking, who is the person you know, who wants to match wits with the Lord? In 16b, Paul responds to his own rhetorical question in the first part of the verse, but in contrast to those who like the Spirit and therefore do not know the mind of the Lord, we have the mind of Christ. So all Christians have the mind of Christ in the sense that we have the Holy Spirit. All Christians can think correctly about God. We have the ability to think God's thoughts after Him. We can read that Bible. We can understand what God is doing. It makes sense to us. Uh, we're able to assess reality, what's really real. And so the Corinthians, since they're saved, the professing Corinthians, those who profess faith, if you're saved, you should be able to do the same thing. They should be able to recognize what's going on in the world around them with the gospel and these kind of people that, you know, these kind of uh, philosophies that they're fascinated with and so forth. So let, I say, let us then summarize Paul's argument. Paul began by insisting that his message was, in fact, an expression of wisdom, God's own wisdom revealed as such by the Spirit. He, at least in contrast to the mere human beings without the Spirit, understands the mind of Christ and those who possess the Spirit, the Corinthians, are potentially possess the same mind. However, as he's going to point out, there's a problem. They are hindered in their understanding by what he calls their worldly mindset or their carnal mindset. And so what does that mean? Well, let's look at that, what their problem is. Oh, I forgot to put that up there about meaning and significance. Did I have that? Yeah. I didn't. Sorry about that. But I remember we talked about meaning and significance, so I won't dwell on that now. Uh, so, uh, on being spiritual and divided. The argument that began as a rebuke against quarrels and divisions looks like it may have gone astray in what follows in 117 through 216. However, the long discussion of wisdom and the cross is not a digression, but almost certainly the real issue. The wisdom that the Corinthians are now pursuing strips the gospel of its real power. 
So if you, you know, if you change the gospel message, if you insert worldly ideas into that message, uh, you're going to strip the gospel of its real power. In other words, the gospel has to be given as it is without changing it, adulterating it, without modifying it. There's always a tendency, <laughs> and it's a tendency in our world, to try to adapt the gospel a little bit, modify it a little bit, so it'll be more acceptable to people. You know, you're going to attract a bigger crowd if you take out some of the harshness out of the gospel. Uh, an example of that is this. Um, in 2013, the PCUSA, so in America, we at one time had one Presbyterian denomination, the Presbyterians. <laughs> um, and in the, in the early part of the 20th century, so if we went back to the, maybe I don't need to give all this background, but I will, I guess I will anyway. <laughs> uh, I often think that, you know, I don't know, I often think that Christians, people in our church, if a person comes and gets saved, uh, what do they think about Christianity? Like, who are these Baptists? and the Methodists, and the Presbyterians, and the Episcopalians. How does that all fit together, you know? Uh, so if we went back to, say, the 1800s, Civil War or something, 1800s, all the major denominations, they're often called mainline denominations. That's the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Episcopalians, they're called mainline. You ever heard that term, mainline denominations? They're, they're, they say that they're called mainline because it comes from a railroad in Philadelphia, a kind of a main line. And where it went, there were a lot of big churches on this main line, you know, the Episcopal Church, the Congregational Church, the Methodist Church, you know. So they got this name mainline. We use that term to speak about the major denominations and so if in, if in the 1800s, if you lived there, if you were Episcopalian, Episcopalians believed the Bible just like we did. I mean, they were, we would call them conservative today. They believed in the inspiration of Scripture, the death of the virgin birth of Christ. They believed all those things. I mean, an Episcopalian, uh, early 1900s, was a president of Moody Bible Institute. So uh, what I'm saying is the Episcopalian denomination was conservative. And it's now they have, the denomination had different beliefs about things. But as far as, you know, the Bible, they believed the Bible. They, they, they had different interpretations of things, but they believed the death of Christ. They believed the gospel. That was true of the Methodists, true of the Presbyterians. But in the early 1900s, in the 1800s and so forth, uh, uh, thinking came in, uh, sometimes called modernism or modernistic thinking, or that criticized the Bible, said there were errors in the Bible. And so we had what we call in the early 1900s the fundamentalist modernist debate. And so 
in the 1800s, all these denominations were conservative, we would say. In the early 1900s, they became splits because some of them became, we would say, liberal. They became li liberal in their thinking. They began to deny things. And the things they denied, uh, the people called the fundamentalists pointed out some of the things they denied, like the inspiration of Scripture, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection, uh, uh, you know, the substitutionary atonement, cri cri critical things like that. And so uh, there were splits in the denominations and so forth. So there are mainline denominations in the United States, mainline ones, that are liberal and you can't get the gospel there, say the United Methodist Church. Now, there are people in the United Methodist Church who are saved. I've met some and so forth. And there are people and there are some United Methodist churches that are, are conservative, actually. I mean, I, I remember a church down south that was very conservative. The pastor would believe the gospel and so forth. But the United Methodist uh, uh, seminaries are very liberal. They're, they're not teaching uh, the gospel. They're, they're teaching the Bible has errors, and they're not, they don't teach the virgin birth. They don't teach, you know. So you've got the United Methodist Church, and you, so you've got splits. There are some Methodist denominations that are conservative. The Presbyterians split. The Baptists split. <laughs> All these denominations split. So there are conservative Met Presbyterians, and there are liberal Presbyterians. I'll finally get to it here. So, like the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, is a pretty conservative denomination. If you went to a PCA church, you would hear the gospel, I mean, almost all the time, and it would be a conservative kind of church. Uh, if you went to a Missouri, going to the Lutherans, the Evangelical Lutheran Church is liberal, the Missouri Church, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate is conservative. So there's conservative Lutherans and liberal Lutherans, conservative Presbyterians and liberal Presbyterians. So anyway, the liberal Presbyterians are the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church of the United States of America. Now they got these names because over the years they had splits and they got together and all that. So the PCUSA is the big liberal denomination they're going down in numbers because they don't have the gospel. If you don't have the gospel, you're not going to attract new people, you know. So the PCUSA was producing a new hymn, hymnal in 2013. And they wanted to include a Getty song, In Christ Alone. They wanted to put this song in their hymnal in 2013. But they didn't like that line, the wrath of God was satisfied. The wrath of God. Because our God is loving. He couldn't be wrathful. You know, He loves people. Everybody's going to heaven. You know, there's no wrath. There's no, you know, we make mistakes, but God forgives all that. He's a loving God. And so they didn't want that line, the wrath of God was satisfied. They... Uh, I had some verses about the wrath of God. We, you know, if you've read enough Bible, you know, it talks about it a lot. The wrath of God's revealed from heaven. 5 9. We've been justified by his wrath. We've been saved from just by blood, saved from God's wrath. Ephesians says we were deserving of God's wrath. 
And so we have a doctrine that we talk about called propitiation. That is, Christ's death appeased the wrath of God. So God is not angry with us at all. He's angry with the wicked all day long, but He's not. So they wanted to change it uh, from the wrath of God was satisfied to the love of God was magnified. <laughs> you know, the PCUSA wanted, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. They didn't like that wrath thing. And to their credit, uh, you know, the Getty said, no, can't use our song. Can't, you can't, uh, can't put it in your hymnal if you're going to change the words like that. So that's what I mean by, uh, you know, what we're talking about here, uh, pursuing this kind of worldly wisdom, which the PSCA was doing, and changing the gospel. Of course, leaving out a, a, an important truth, you know, that, <laughs> that God is angry with sinners and there is wrath coming unless one is under the blood. So I say here, not only does the wisdom that the Corinthians are now pursuing strip the gospel of its real power, it has led to divisions. So with this paragraph, Paul makes this transition from one argument over the nature of the gospel and the meaning of true wisdom to the other that is about divisions in the name of their ministers. I say here, Paul has two concerns in this paragraph, both noted in the title given to the section on being spiritual and divided. For Paul, they are mutually exclusive. You can't be spiritual and divided. But the Corinthians think of themselves as the one. They are spiritual, but they are really divided. Thus, Paul does two things which flow directly from what we've just talked about in 2.6 through 16 that lead to 3.5 through 17. First, picking up the idea of being people with the Spirit from what he has just preached, Paul makes a frontal attack and pronounces the Corinthians as not acting like people with the Spirit. Indeed, they are just the opposite. They are worldly, still thinking like the unsaved who do not have the Spirit. So it's possible for Christians to act like unsaved people. So even though you can be regenerated, we still have sinful disposition and what we sometimes say a sinful nature and we can act like unsaved people. And the Corinthians were doing this. Uh, indeed, they are just the opposite. They are worldly, still thinking like the unsaved who don't have the Spirit. Paul's not suggesting classes of Christians or grades of spirituality, but wants to keep them to stop thinking like people of the present age. Second, he wants them to stop behaving like the people of the present age. Their behavior is that of unsaved people. Paul, of course, does not mean to say the Corinthians are unsaved. They don't have the Spirit. They do have the Spirit, and that's the problem because they're thinking and behaving otherwise. They're behaving like they don't, like they're not regenerate. He says, verse 1, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Mere infants in Christ. So I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. So Paul now proceeds to apply the argument of 2, 6 through 16 to the Corinthian situation. The use of the words brothers and sisters and the second person plural pronouns throughout, that is you, a plural you, shows he's not addressing a faction within the congregation, but the church as a whole. Not all may be guilty. 
Not everyone in the church is guilty of this, but all are defiled by the actions of the many. It's infected the whole church to some degree. The past tense of the verbs, I could not, I gave you, you were not, indicate Paul is reflecting on the time of his initial visit in 1 Corinthians, I mean, excuse me, Acts 18. <laughs> when he first started the church in Acts 18, uh, he says at that time there was a problem. Even though you got saved, there was a problem with your spiritual growth right at the beginning. Um, the Corinthians, as I say, are involved in a lot of unchristian behavior. And so in that sense, they're unspiritual, not, not, not in the sense they lack the spirit, but they're thinking and acting like those who don't have the spirit. He, he calls them worldly, or some translations say fleshly. Uh, Paul then continues his argument, but with new imagery. He calls them mere infants in Christ. The Corinthians think of themselves as spiritual, and, are, and they are in one sense. They have the Spirit. Yet their thinking and behavior demonstrates that they are worldly or fleshly. And just as they think of themselves as spiritual, so they too they think of themselves as full-grown, as mature. Remember Paul used that term back in 2.6 about he called them mature, and I suggest at that time, why does he use that word mature? They probably think of themselves as mature. However, you know, by considering, apparently they, they look upon Paul's teaching as being rather simple. You know, this gospel is rather simple. It is a simple message, you know, in one sense it's pretty simple. But on the other hand, it's rather complex. <laughs> I mean, we can say Christ died for our sins on the cross, but there's a lot to that death. You can spend a lot of time studying the various aspects of that death and what was accomplished and so forth. And we do, you know, we do study that. So uh, apparently they looked upon Paul's teaching as somewhat simplistic and they are kind of going after this worldly wisdom. <clears throat> I say the argument of 2.6 through 16 implies that for Paul, the gospel of the crucified one is both milk and solid food. As milk, it's the good news of salvation. As solid food, it's understanding that the entire Christian life is based on the same reality. Thus, the Corinthians don't need a change in diet, but a change in perspective. Paul's point here is to move the Corinthians from their present fascination with wisdom, this Greek wisdom, back to the pure gospel of the crucified Christ. Uh, the problem is not on what he's teaching them, it's on what they're doing, what they're imbibing. And so he says, I could not explain, uh, I could not explain the cross, you know, as real wisdom because you could not. You, you, you were advancing in the wrong direction. You, were, you weren't going to become spiritually mature. So the problem, the problem is that it's not with the message, but they're not, uh, they're, um, they're accepting it in a sense, but they're looking at it, adulterating it with this worldly wisdom, with Greek wisdom, Greek philosophy, uh, and ultimately corrupting the message. He says, verse 2, Indeed, you're still not ready, you're still worldly, for since there are jealousy and quarrelings among you, 
Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? So you expect this kind of conduct among unsaved people, but it shouldn't be among Christians. So Paul now moves to their present situation as proof that they cannot even now understand the true nature of the gospel as truly spiritual people should. He con confronts them with their present jealousy and quarrelings. So these are not the activities of people who live by the Spirit, but are the behavior of people who are living in the flesh. You're acting like unsaved people. And so I say that this, the sentence here, this verse, concludes with this rhetorical question. You know, are you not acting? Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? Um, for as many as much as they're uh, they are, in fact, rivalry and quarrelings among you. Is it not clear evidence that you are yet living from the point of view of the unsaved? Um, so those who don't have the Spirit, I say here, are mere humans. They consider the cross foolishness. At the same time, their behavior stems from merely human, those self-centered point of view. The Corinthians have the Spirit, but are behaving precisely like people who do not, like mere humans. Verse 4, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Paul brings the argument back to where it began in 1.10 through 12, just as he noted in 1.11 through 12, the Corinthians' slogans specifically illustrate their quarrels, and this, these are evidence that they are walking according to the flesh. So the Corinthians measured their spiritual wisdom by siding with Paul or Apollos, or perhaps Peter was mentioned there. Um, the Corinthians believed that this partisanship reflected their spiritual perception. You know, I, I'm the really spiritually mature person. I'm following Apollos. Oh, I'm the really spiritually mature person. I'm following Paul or maybe Peter, you know. Um, so they're actually living, uh, acting rather worldly, putting their emphasis on these human leaders. So Paul's going to correct that here. He says, you know, you misunderstand the gospel message. You're diluting it, adulterating it, confusing it with worldly wisdom. And you're misunderstanding the church and the ministry especially leaders of the church. What's the role of leaders in the church? The argument at this point has been dealing with the problem of strife in the church. At issue, however, is not simply quarreling, but also the Corinthians' misguided perception of the nature of the church and its leadership. In this case, especially the role of teachers. So Paul now takes up this question on how they are to regard their teachers using two illustrations, two metaphors, first from farming and then from building things. So the farming is verses 6 through 9, and the building is verses 10 through 17. So he says the human leaders are God's workmen. And he has a direct statement of that here. What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Here's the answer. Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. So I say the Corinthians boasting in ministers like Paul and Apollos is clear evidence that the Corinthians are acting like mere humans. This is what humans do. And therefore, not yet what they should be. 
But beyond that, their boasting misses the point of the Christian ministry. Paul seeks to bring this out with two rhetorical questions. What, after all, is Apollos and what is Paul? Well, they're really just servants through whom you came to believe. Paul and Apollos were servants through whom the Corinthians came to believe. The emphasis on the fact that the Corinthians did not believe in Paul or Paulus, but through them they came to believe in Christ. And each servant worked according to the task given him by Christ himself, as the Lord has assigned to each his task, he says. So I was doing what the Lord assigned me to do. Apollos was doing what God assigned him to do. So, you know, that's, that's the warning here. We shouldn't focus so much on the servant, but on the Lord, um, because people like Paul and Apollos are simply carrying out their assigned task, which are different. God gifted Paul with certain abilities, and, a, and he gave him a certain task, and he gifted Apollos <coughs> with certain abilities, and gave him a certain task. Um, and they were the vehicle for the faith of the Corinthians. But their effectiveness is not inherent in themselves, but it's due, that is, the, the, the fact that they were effective in the Corinthian church was not due to Paul and Apollos themselves, but it was the Lord working through them. It was through Paul and Apollos, but it was God's work in the Corinthians. So he's going to explain that. He's going to illustrate that with an illustration from farming that they would understand. He says, here's an illustration of what I'm talking about. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God has been making it grow. As verse 9 and the rest of the argument indicates, Paul is not thinking of the conversion of individual Corinthians, but of the planting of the church. You, plural, are God's field. The one who planted was Paul who founded the church. So I'm trying to explain here that it's common to misunderstand Paul's illustration here. It's pretty natural. And you'll, you'll, hear, we, you'll hear people say, well, you know, I've planted the seed, the gospel, and somebody else came along and, you know, talked to them about the gospel. And somebody else came along and they watered it and then they got saved, you know. Uh, and that's true. That's how it works. Most people don't get saved the first time they hear the gospel. Somebody gives it to them. And, you know, sometimes the person who initially gives the gospel and there's no response is very discouraged. <laughs> and, you know, maybe in heaven they'll know, hey, that was the first time they heard and then somebody else came along that's all true, but that's not what Paul is saying here. The planting is the planting of the church, not planting of the gospel. And so I planted the seed. I planted, so he's talking about farming. See, we think of the seed as the seed of the gospel, but that's not what he's talking about here. Remember, this is an illustration. A farmer plants a seed. So Paul planted the church. Apollos watered it. I say the one who watered it was Apollos who continued a teaching ministry among them. So Paul established a church, and then we know in Acts 18, Apollos came and taught them. He taught them, you know. Now, I'm sure maybe some more people were saved or, you know, whatever, but he didn't plant the church, and that's Paul's illustration here. 
I planted the church. Apollos comes later. His, he's not a church planter. His, his job is to teach. He waters the church, waters the seed. But the one who has been making it grow is God to whom they all belong. But it's God has been making it grow. So the field or farm is the church in Corinth. So the point is, Paul says, our focus should not be so much on the servants, but on God who makes it grow. Verse 7, so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Well, really? Well, in comparison to God, right? But only God who makes the things grow. The problem is with Corinthians with perspective. They think too highly of their teachers. The questions, what after all is Paul and what is Apollos, are answered with an unqualified nothing. Paul and Apollos do have an essential task to perform for which they will receive their own rewards, but they have no independent importance. Um, so from the perspective of the, of the ultimate responsibility for the Corinthians' existence as the church of God, Paul and Apollos count for nothing. I mean, they, they did something, but it wouldn't be anything if God didn't make it grow. Without God's prior activity to bring them to faith and causing them to grow, there's no church at all. So the point is clear. Stop quarreling about those who are nothing in comparison to the activity of God. That's the point. Now, I mean, there's lots of other passages in the Bible that say, honor those who teach the Word of God and, and respecting your elders. You know, there's elders, stuff about elders and, and stuff like that. So it, it's, it's, you know, but the point here in the illustration is in comparison to God, these people are putting too much emphasis saying, I'm following, I'm a follower of Paul. That, that's a real problem for a Christian to say that, you know, uh, real problem. Verse 8, the one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. Those over whom the Corinthians are bickering only serve under God. Those who establish the churches and all those who nurture them have one fundamental purpose. In their labor and ministry, they are serving the Lord while endeavoring to carry out His will. Therefore, their mutual concern is the same, the growth of the church to a rich harvest. So these people, Paul and Apollos, have but one purpose. And the second half of this verse indicates kind of a diversity of pay. They will each be rewarded according to their own labor. Uh, you know, saying that all growth is ascribed to God does not imply uh, there's no responsibility for ministry. That is, that Paul and Apollos have no responsibility, that they won't be judged, but they, they will be. They will be evaluated for what they've done, for the quality of their work, and they'll be rewarded accordingly. But in comparison to God, they're really nothing because it's God who makes things grow. Verse 9, for we are co-workers in God's service. So that, here's the point. 
Paul and Apollos, we are co-workers, but we're in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. The work is ultimately God's, and yet ministers like Paul and Apollos are co-workers who belong to God. God grants blessings, so conversions or spiritual growth comes from Him, and yet co-workers are the means by which the growth which stems from God become a reality. So we've got to have Paul and Apollos. We have to have human workers. We have to have human beings. God carries out His work through human beings, but it's God who makes things grow. So the work of these co-workers is significant, but as we say, all fruit of the ministry, all the positive effects are ascribed to God's grace. So the church doesn't belong to, God, to Paul, it doesn't belong to Paulus, it doesn't belong to any minister. And he says the church is God's field. So there's the farming metaphor that we've just been discussing. The farming, you are God's field, you're like a field. I planted, Apollos watered, and God is the one who made it grow. But Paul now changes the illustration here and identifies the church, the Corinthians, as God's building. You are God's, you are God's field. You are God's building. God's building. So, you know, this is, reminds us, he, he kind of compares the church to like a temple, he shifts from the agricultural metaphor to the architectural metaphor here. And that paves the way for what we're going to see in 10 through 17. The church is really like a temple that God inhabits. And he says that. So let's look at that illustration from the building. At the end of the previous section, Paul made a change of illustration to God's building, which he now begins to explain. He's concerned to warn those at Corinth who are currently building the church. So all of us in here are building CBC one way or another. We're all doing something, maybe positive, hopefully positively, <laughs> you know. Sometimes we can do things negatively that hurt the church. You know, we hope we don't. We try not to. We don't want to, but we're all building the church. The discussion shifts from Paul and Apollos to Paul and those responsible for the current wood, hay, or straw of human wisdom. So the argument continues here to be a direct attack on the church at Corinth as far as its divisions are concerned and those who are primarily responsible for these divisions. Paul is concerned about those who are leading the church in certain directions and he wants them to take heed because of what you're building, what you're doing, how the church is developing here. Because you have shifted from building the church with imperishable building materials to perishable building materials. I mean, it's possible to have a Christian church that's not really much of a Christian church. It's not really built on things that are true to the gospel, true to the Bible. 310, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise master builder. This is just like I planted. And someone else is building upon it. Apollos, you know. But each one should build with care. In this new illustration, three of the comparisons remain the same as the illustration for farming. The church in Corinth is the building, not the individual Christian. God is the owner 
And Paul, again, is presented as the founder of the church, the one who laid a foundation as a wise master builder. This wise builder is the Greek word architecton, and it refers to someone who serves kind of like an architect and an engineer. He kind of designs it, and he kind of oversees its building. Um, so Paul laid the foundation, which, of course, was Jesus Christ and Him crucified, Jesus and the message of the gospel. Paul was wise. He was the wise builder. Uh, but the problem in Corinth is people are building the church with the wrong material. And by building the church with the long, wrong material, they're in danger of building the church with another foundation, changing the foundation, destroying the foundation. He'll bring that out in verse 11 here. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul warns the Corinthians that there is only one genuine foundation for building a church, the gospel itself with its basic content of salvation through Jesus Christ. But as I say, there's lots of churches out there that are built on something else today, unfortunately. So Paul says you've got to be careful here about the superstructure. The superstructure relates to the character of the foundation. An improper superstructure, what they're doing, can destroy the foundation of the building. The gospel can, can, can be completely rooted out. That's what the PCUSA wanted to do with that song. Let's get rid of that wrath of God stuff. We don't like that gospel, even though it's in the Bible. We don't like that. We want a different gospel than what, what that song implies. Verse 12, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, verse 13, their work will be shown for what it is. So let's talk about that first part. This is the primary point of this entire paragraph, the building materials. The, the idea is that the quality of the superstructure must be appropriate to the foundation. We got the, the foundation is the gospel of the crucified Messiah, Jesus Christ. We've got to build on that appropriately. But what does Paul intend by the six building materials? Gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, straw. The list is split into two categories. Some building materials represented by gold, silver, and costly stones are useful and beneficial in erecting a structure on the foundation of God's temple, while others, wood, hay, or straw, are useless and will eventually be destroyed. So we're talking here, the, the difference is perishable materials and imperishable materials. So, you know, sometimes you know, people will say, well, um, um, let's see, gold is more precious than silver. or You know, Paul's not making a point of the, that at all. He's just making a point of some things perish and some things last. And these, these costly stones are not diamonds. <laughs> These are costly building stones, you know, expensive building materials. So you can build a building with the right kind of building materials, expensive, or you can build with junk. Uh, and so these building materials represent the work of the ministers as they build upon the foundation of God's temple. Well, verse 13, we'll close with this. Their work will be shown. They're going to build... 
You can build them with, with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. Their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. He says, a day of judgment is coming and will test everyone's building, that is, how one is built, whether of perishable or imperishable materials. The test with its result and disclosure of the quality of the materials will determine the reward. So Paul affirms that the kind of building one constructs, that is the kind of stuff that goes into the workmanship, will eventually be clear for all to see. One day it'll be evident. It may not be evident now. You drive down, you see different churches, and you may not be able to tell. Fire was a well-known figure for judgment. So that's the, that's the illustration here. It will be revealed by fire. There will be a coming a judgment. Here in verses 14 and 15, we'll make clear the emphasis on the testing quality of fire. It will judge each one's workmanship. You see, these stones could stand the fire, but wood, hay, and straw won't. So these, the, this fire will judge whether it's been made of quality material. So Paul says the day of judgment will, dis, will dis expose every person's workmanship, whether it's the gospel, that's the goal, the silver, the costly stones. You can build with the gospel, with the Bible, with the truths of Scripture, or wood, hay, or straw. And one day it'll be clear you know, what's what, what is true and what is not true. All right, we better stop here. We're going over a little bit, and we'll, I'll kind of come back and finish this up next time. Thank you very much. <laughs>